0: Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are building a better future. Now, to use a word that I learned from our special guest today, Building Tomorrow is basically a cosmogram. More on that in a few minutes. But first, let me introduce Finn Brunton, Associate Professor of Media, Culture, and Communication at NYU and author of Digital Cash, the Unknown History of the Anarchists, Technologists, and Utopians Who Created Cryptocurrency. Welcome to the show, Finn. Thank you for having me. Now, when people read your title, I think they're going to immediately think it's about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and that's not inappropriate. There's lots of that in the book. But at the start, you say you're describing something even broader. You say that the story of digital digital cash is inextricably intertwined in the challenge of making digital data valuable. What does that mean? With digital cash, digital data valuable, What what is that?
1: Well, that was like sort of my my way of trying to solve a problem that I'd started to run into as I was working on the early days of the book because it it took many years to write. And, you know, initially I thought like, you know, in a way, in a funny way, the book kind of recreates my own experience of trying to work in it because I thought, oh, I'm working <laughs> on a book about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And then I slowly realized like, wait, to explain what happened with Bitcoin, I need to explain who these earlier people and precedent things were. And then it slowly dawned on me that a lot of the underlying technologies and tools and ideas didn't necessarily come from people who thought they were making money. Hmm. They came from people who were trying to figure out why something which could be, why data, which could be like... Uh, seamlessly and uh, effectively, I'm hesitating because I don't want to say this exactly, <laughs> but effectively free, uh, that could be effectively freely copied, You know, that could be duplicated uh, an effectively infinite number of times at effectively no cost. How do you make that valuable or what does value mean in mm. that case? And so I started to find that a lot of the earliest people who built the things that ended up becoming the underlying infrastructure for digital cash they were concerned about things like uh sharing music they were concerned about things like building information marketplaces Um, they were all kind of wrangling with this question of if sending an email is effectively free how do you make email just expensive enough that people don't spam each other like there were all these different projects that all circled around this idea of how do you find ways to uh, as perverse as this sounds, to limit the ways that data can circulate.
0: One of the other big themes to touch on before we get to the specifics um, you, you make in the intro is that digital cash is a way of quote telling stories about the future, um, and I think eventually this leads to your discussion of cosmograms. So, what does that mean? What does it mean that digital cash tells a story, and what is a cosmogram?
1: Like, so what I what I realized kind of early on was that. It's really interesting to work on a history of digital cash because for a lot of that history, there's a lot of work on digital cash and not a lot of digital cash. Like <laughs> a lot of like people, you know, writing code or writing manifestos or writing science fiction, and they're they're serious about it. They're absolutely serious about getting this off the ground. But what they all understand in various ways is that for people to actually adopt a monetary technology you have to be able to uh, effectively tell a story about the future. And I mean that in a really concrete way, right? Because uh, we accept cash, we accept money, any form of money, any kind of monetary token or vehicle, we accept it because we believe that in the future it will be accepted from us, you know? Unless we are, you know, uh, numismatists, right? Like people who work with historical coinage and financial systems um and we're collectors what have you Every other case is a case where we take something because we think its value will hold into the future, because we think it will be accepted from us in receipt for payment of taxes, for goods or services, what have you. Um, so that means that when you are trying to create something new and you don't have the inherent authority, you know, of of a national government or of the Visa Corporation or of, you know, Starbucks gift cards or whatever, if you don't have that kind of incumbent power, you need to have a potent fantasy. And I don't mean fantasy in a, in a negative way. The story of digital cash, in large part, until Bitcoin really starts to take off, is a story about people telling stories. is a story about people kind of creating, creating fantasy visions. And that kind of ties into the Cosmogram idea, which was um, a, a, an idea that I took from a, a wonderful historian of science um, named John Tresh, whose work I, I really recommend. But he was trying to understand... How there were, if you go back and look at like the the science of um, like you know in France that he was working on science of the Enlightenment. In fact, science through many eras, you will often see that people create these really weird objects where they are. sort of cultural things that help explain our place in the universe. So they will often like kind of tell a story about the future. They will have some, uh, some kind of rituals or activities connected with them that will help us kind of uh, understand how it relates to us and so on. And I started to realize cosmograms are a really useful way To look at the kinds of platforms people were building around digital cash, especially in the early days, because these were never just like, here's a new transaction system, because it's like, who cares? You know, Visa's way better at new transaction systems than, you know, 10 smart dudes on the West Coast of California. Um, But instead, what they had to do was build like a system in which transacting this cash was part of your commitment to a different way of life was part of like your commitment to a vision of how we could be, how our society could be organized. And they had to kind of stitch the the sort of, uh, you know, day-to-day workings of money technologies into a, a whole kind of ideological and fantasy apparatus. And that turned out to be tremendously effective.
0: The other aspect you talk about is uh, buttressed by Cosmograms, visions of the future, or stories about the future. But money also is passing current. Uh, that's the phrase, passing current. What does that yeah. mean? I, I take it that's true of all money, not just digital cash.
1: Yeah, yeah. And passing current is a phrase that I actually adopted from uh, like the, the, the sort of workaday world of uh, treasury departments, and especially treasury enforcement, because one of the challenges, right, is to uh, manage what passes as money within you know the the borders of a state for instance and so how do you describe when something is edging out of being coupons you know or casino chips or scrip or points or all of the other things that kind of have money like properties how do you kind of clamp down when something is starting to replace the currency And, you know, create the various kinds of potential instability that that creates. Well, you identify when it has become passing current, because passing current, which is such a beautiful poetic phrase, but is also like a really, really literal applied concept. A passing current like token means that it's money that people accept in the assurance that they will be able to pass it on with the same uh universal properties that state issued money has right so in the same way that like um we you know like that's that's where we get the phrase like legal tender for all debts public and private right like if i owe you money uh i can pay you back in us dollars and you can't say like you can't pay me back in this i demand payment in you know casino chips laundry detergent (laughs) or euros yeah (laughs) or casino chips or what have you Um, and so so this interesting kind of borderline is passed where money starts to kind of ease into something that acts like money. And when it's really acting like money is when it becomes something that is passing current money, I take it, I know that other people will accept it, or I trust that they will accept it in the same way that they will accept, you know, central bank issued notes. Um, And and so in but you're absolutely right that like, that's another area where we see these larger stories. Um, And I would love to just recommend uh, one of my absolute favorite books about money, which is uh, the historian Rebecca Spang's book, Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution where she uh, is looking at, like, how do you essentially invent a wholesale new currency in the middle of a giant revolutionary chaotic (laughs) situation? And she like does a really good job of capturing that a lot of the experience of money is the experience of what she calls um, uh, trust cemented by repetition into faith um that like if something keeps happening often enough then it would never even cross your mind that like this wouldn't hold its value over time or that someone would refuse it in the future and that is like part of a very kind of powerful cosmogramic structure that we inhabit that kind of constrains our sense of what the future will hold
0: hmm. i mean that i i do find that um interesting where uh, you 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 talking here with you know, some of the early origins of of paper currency are, um, I forget what they're called, uh, exchange notes or bank ne- – or not even bank notes. Like, oh, yeah, you know,
1: bills of exchange. Bills of exchange. Stuff. You know, yeah. one,
0: one merchant says, hey, I'm going to pay you for this. Here's an IOU. Well, then the second merchant, they can sign that over to a third merchant and, and they can sign it to yeah. a fourth and so on. And the value of that is predicated on the, re- the, the trust – the The trust that people have in every member of that chain. so if yeah. if which gets to the the idea of this as a chain of of trust um, created by ritual and, and repetition. so if if you're a merchant who has a reputation for welching on that IOU, well, people aren't going to put a lot of stock in that bill of exchange. It's going to be worthless um, because it's less certain that you'll pay. But if you you're someone who you've done a lot of these IOUs and you keep passing that bill of exchange on and you're good for it. Well, that's the repetition, the ritual of signing that bill of exchange, all of that cements trust in that that currency in a sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And like the kind of paradox of the old school bills of exchange, which were that the more people who had, you know, bought and sold one of them, you know, like the, basically you'd, like, you'd be getting it at kind of a more and more of a discounted rate the more people there were in, in line. Mm-hmm. Or, but also the more you could trust it because the more you could be like, well, that means that all of the rest of these merchants have evaluated this, you know, and maybe I know some of them myself and like the more of us. And also it means that like if someone defaults on this, we have a pretty substantial kind of posse that we can put together <laughs> to like try to sort the situation out and get made whole, you know, Um and and so so it creates a, a, you can kind of see the, you can look at almost every form of, of monetary asset, every form of that kind of vehicle of exchange as sort of holding within it one or another model of trust, whether it's kind of trust in the extended network of, of other merchants or trust in the nation state or trust in a particular bank or what have you.
0: And this is in theory, the goal that, with digital cash, in particular, contemporary cryptocurrencies are trying to I mean, they're trying to make them trustless, uh, which yeah. is kind of very radical in that sense, because most, you know, most alternatives, you have to trust someone. In this, you're yeah. still, I suppose there is still trust even in, crypt, in crypto, in contemporary crypto, where there's trust in the process, um, but the, the goal in theory is to remove that necessity of trust.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Although that also raises what for me really jumps out as one of the paradoxes of cryptocurrency, which is that there's actually like, there's actually two different kinds of trust involved. And there's a kind of weird little, I feel like almost sleight of hand that sometimes happens (laughs) in how we talk about uh, cryptocurrency, where There's, right, because when we usually talk about uh, like trusting money, trusting like cash, we usually talk about being able to trust that it's real, you know, that it like hasn't been forged, it hasn't been duplicated. But we're also talking about the other kind of trust, which is trust that like someone else will take it from us, that it will be exchangeable. And so one of the interesting things with Bitcoin is that talking about Bitcoin and lots of all the others, you know, related currencies, is that when we talk about it as trustless, we are usually technically talking about the fact that you don't need like you can trust that the rights to trade a bitcoin token have not been duplicated and that more of it has not been produced it's all still working on schedule but people often use that to mean trustless in the sense that this thing has its value because math you know this thing has its value because of the (laughs) properties of prime numbers or what have you um when in fact It has its value because of the fact that other people also remain equally sure that it will continue to be exchangeable over time. And I say that because um, I find myself talking to people, especially people who are like outside the crypto world, who I realize they think that like somehow the the uh, you know, the, the sort of hashing algorithm challenges that Bitcoin has guarantee that it will remain valuable, when in fact, they only guarantee that it will remain scarce. Mm -hmm. And so the the trick that you kind of run into there is as you're building a cryptocurrency, you also want to make sure that you aren't accidentally building the next Dogecoin, right? Yeah, you know, where yeah, it's like yeah. the, the algorithm still holds, but but now no one cares about it, you know? Like yeah. no one no one is going to be willing to receive it from you. So so it's interesting to think about like how do you guarantee that larger social trust once you've built the like technical trust.
0: It is digital cash, we've spent a lot of time talking about like what is money and one of the things that struck me while reading i mean you go back i mean you go back really far briefly, but a lot of your story starts in the nineteen twenties and thirties the Howard Scott and the technocrats, those kind of folks uh david Chom in the in the seventies um so these are ideas that have been around for decades, half a century or or more. Um, and so I'm struck and it's always striking where, look, these are ideas that were kind of spoken into existence. You have all these white papers and manifestos and and, at, and who would have thought that would actually become something? It really is, again, back, it's a, the striking power of the cosmogram, of this cosmological thinking and, and evoking new futures and drawing them forth in the reality. Um, but I, I was curious, so why... What was it? Was it the technological limitations of of the 1970s and 80s that prevented these ideas from becoming reality uh, as opposed to, I mean, you know, uh, Bitcoin in the 2000s, obviously the last decade has been a fruitful time. These ideas have become real. Why now? Why not 40 years ago?
1: That's a fantastic question. Um, and I think the... the uh, it's really honestly it's also a very very painful thing to look back on like you go back through all of this work where people were building stuff that was like really functional you know stuff for being able to produce like unique authenticable like electronic notes that could pass as money but would not generate any records about you know who spent them um, like mechanisms that would have created amazing micro micro payments architectures so that we could have basically sidestepped like the whole nightmare that online advertising, behavioral tracking, and malware and so on all became like all these different tools and none of them ever quite gel, you know, <laughs> none of them ever quite make it. Um, and I think the you can um, kind of
0: see the present in mm-hmm. them, like like looking darkly through a mirror, you can see winkles of what yeah. would become true. But just not. Yeah, it's really frustrating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I uh, the answer that I arrived at is that um, you can definitely find some kind of case by case uh, reasons why particular projects, I mean, most notably uh, Chum's DigiCash, for instance, which were like really, really close to uh, to sort of wide implementation, never took off. And, you know, a lot of those have to do with, you know, the, the sort of vagaries of management and particular companies and infighting and blah, blah, blah. But I think there was a larger reason why the great bulk of them um, never, never quite made it, and it was that they were, they were, they were trying to create a framework which was going to be either widely adopted or not at all, and and therein lay the challenge, right? And this is what kind of brings us back to one of the things that makes money kind of unique in some ways. As a, as a human process, which is that um, we have great email encryption. And a lot of the people who are working on email encryption were also working on digital cash. But email encryption only needs two people, right? Like someone with the crypto software on their account and someone with the crypto software on their account to decrypt the message that they receive. But to actually get up to the kind of critical mass that it takes for something to begin functioning in a monetary way Um, You either need large scale institutional buy in or you need large scale social buy in. And so what you end up seeing is this kind of tragedy of people like trying to get up to escape velocity over and over again, you know, Um, and trying repeatedly to identify like who is. Who are the parties who are sufficiently interested that they could help us carry this to the stage where you start to know, where you start to get out of the kind of trap that Bitcoin was in in the early days, right? Where it's like the only people who would accept Bitcoin were people who were really into Bitcoin. And so therefore there was not a hell of a lot that you could actually buy with it. Um, So how do you get up to the stage where you can actually have these kinds of like wide ordinary passing current kinds of interactions? So you could see like kind of the two moves in this regard. One was we will appeal to like some kind of major corporation and they will step in, you know, um, Chown was really, you know, he was trying to do deals with big banks, with Visa, with Microsoft, um, and then one by one, all of those fell through for various reasons, partially in some cases because the value proposition was actually against their own incentives, these big companies. They were like, mm-hmm. wait a second, we're <laughs> going to sacrifice all of this, you know, all of this incredibly rich real-time data, you know? We're going to get rid of the largest order book in existence um, so we can guarantee people's privacy. But the other challenge, which is very pertinent in some ways to to Bitcoin and what became a Bitcoin— was how do you kind of get like ordinary people into a place where they would actually be willing to to accept this. And that's where you start to see one of my favorite things that that this book, uh, working on this book revealed to me, which was that even in the 90s, the early 90s, the people who were building digital cash were like drugs illegal drugs, black markets, these are areas where you have like whole populations who are like, yeah, we will totally accept this as money because of the fact that this will actually like, this is a place where there's something to buy that you can't get any other way, you know. and, and so, so they started kind of casting around for these like proto Silk Road sorts of setups. But and this is like just how I'll end this thought. But you can like see the danger that that creates. Right. Which is that it also means that you're producing a kind of self marginalizing currency. It's going to like create a situation where instead of having the robustness of ordinary transactions, you're going to have something that is immediately identified as Bitcoin was for a while. <laughs> it's like the thing that you can only use to buy like drugs and guns.
0: Now I, I'm also struck too um, by the dates involved. Um, so David Chom, DigiCash, I think it was 1975. So we're right at the tail end of the, you know, the greatest shakeup of trust and in institution, institutional authority, trust in government had just gone through the ringer, right? Pentagon Papers, government government lied to us about Vietnam, uh, the Watergate scandal, Nixon's been. I mean, 75 is a real. Um, uh, earthquake—the end of an earthquake moment in kind of American trust institutions, and so it makes a certain amount of sense that that's the moment when Chom like people don't trust the money they currently use. So maybe more people are willing to imagine and trust in this thing, this that I'm offering them. Um, but Bitcoin itself is on the—it's right at the in the midst of the financial crash in, in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, where do you see that? Like, what's the role that 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 plays, the, the timing, the historical moment of these things?
1: Oh, it's, it's the, it's one of the greatest acts of luck that could ever possibly (laughs) (laughs) have happened to getting, getting a project like that off the ground. Um, No, because, um, you know, so, so, uh, so Chum kind of does a lot of his formal announcements in the, in the early eighties, but by 1975 is when you're seeing uh, like, which is, you know, very kind of early days for a lot of crypto people, but you're already starting to see them like realizing what's coming, you know, and start, but, but they're realizing what's coming, but they're not able to explain how widespread computers are going to be right like they're not able like they the the you know the american populace is more than ready to understand that they you know face real threats from out of control state surveillance you know and from from you know many kinds of potential long-term dangers but how does that apply to like you know buying and selling stuff over computers have you ever seen a computer outside of a magazine have you ever touched (laughs) one But people like, you know, Paul Armour, John McCarthy, they're already talking about the home information terminal, and they're already like six steps ahead into the threat that is going to be posed by doing more and more of our buying and selling online. Um, Now, by 2008, by contrast, like now you have like everyone understands the platform that we're all now using right like now we kind of have that context where it has become so normalized that you can suddenly really find it plausible that you would be able to engage in these kinds of transactions over a smartphone over you know yeah like all the different mechanisms that we have and then you combine that with a massive mobile credit crisis so that's why uh, I think that's one of the things that was you know more or less a historical accident in a lot of ways Um, like all of these different projects have been floating around, as as many people know, but as in the book, I really kind of spell out in detail, you can see things that were more or less Bitcoin with a few small changes um, running back, you know, appearing in multiple different contexts year over year. Now, suddenly, this thing comes into play at the exact moment that you're like witnessing a wholesale meltdown of the sort of central bank managed economic apparatus. So, So that really is something where now, Instead of a crisis of privacy but no available technology as we had in the 1970s, now we have ubiquitous technology and a major emergency that demands some kind of solution.
0: It makes sense that in the 1970s – I mean most Americans in the 70s don't have even credit cards – most people still pay with cash. Only very wealthy people have credit cards in the 1970s. A very small percentage of people. I mean, they're used to paying with a physical thing. So the idea that if, to skip past first the credit card, then kind of online payment, you know, your PayPal kind of systems, you're you're asking people to jump three or four developmental steps ahead. They're just not ready for that. Or you know, ordinary people they can't even imagine. It's hard to get them to jump one step ahead, let alone skip over a couple, three or four steps. So that makes that makes perfect sense. Now, I'm also interested here in some of these groups, uh, and we don't have time to go in great detail through all of them, but they're odd people, right? So why don't you, what, what's that milieu like in the 80s and 90s and early aughts? Like, who are these people? What do they believe? What draws them together to try to build these grand cosmological visions of the future?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. They're deeply odd people. And likewise, I say that not as an insult, but kind of out of love, you know, because they were people who, if there's one thing that unites them, they were people who deliberately wanted to be living those like three or four technological generations ahead, right? Like they wanted to... To anticipate not just the next wave of what was coming, but the consequences of that and the consequences of that, and then live in that extrapolation in advance and help to accelerate its advent. That's kind of the other theme that unites them, which I find especially uh, fascinating and compelling to go back and revisit, is that these were all groups that wanted to live in that future right they didn't just want to like build industries or you know start businesses or affect policy they wanted to actually create a much in many ways a much weirder and kind of more interesting world in which they could live so we have just you know to kind of outline a couple of them we have the and they all overlapped in a lot of ways they all kind of knew each other they were all kind of closely related um the cypherpunk community who were both like engaged in the practical process of trying to bring military grade encryption to the civilian population um to prevent the sort of prospect of of total surveillance that the digital age was going to bring but who also wanted to like imagine what that society would look like. What a society would look like where everything that we did took advantage of powerful encryption technologies. Um, and they they developed these really kind of extraordinary visions, some of which ended up shaping things like the Silk Road, some of which ended up shaping things like WikiLeaks, um, and many of which have not yet been realized. But I think it's well worth going back and looking at their work and being like, OK, they were right about this and right about that. What else are they predicting? Um, but then then they're kind of their uh, sister group, which. I just adore the extropians. And the extropians were philosophically committed to the, as their name would suggest, the opposite of entropy, right? They wanted to build a a society and an economy that would generate more information, more life, more complexity, more energy, um, basically more of everything. Um, And how is this for like the ambitions for a like, you know, technological subculture they wanted to build an economy, including a new monetary system based on digital cash, that would so accelerate innovation that they would be immortal, that we would have the breakthroughs that would be necessary for them to live forever within their lifetimes.
0: Now, this is that tie to the you know uh, cryonics and futurism. I mean, when you say they want to see the products of these innovations and the innovations based off of those innovations and the third generation after that you mean you meant that literally they wanted to see it so they would freeze their brains
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes yes yeah exactly they wanted you know because when you when you think about it like if you are kind of building the motor of uh like extraordinary technological breakthroughs and you believe that those are going to happen and a key thing that will make those breakthroughs possible is the proliferation of new kinds of digital cash that can be used as you know investment vehicles as things that will be able to accelerate change then you want to make sure that, you know, because what could possibly be worse than building this whole system and then dying like six months before the singularity that will, you know, <laughs> upload your brain into a satellite and shoot you off into space? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so they would all have themselves frozen. And in fact, when you go back to like, even very early days, someone I became fascinated with, Philip Salin, um, who was a sort of economist, uh, who also got into the private spaceflight industry in the 80s and tried to build an information marketplace. He died, uh, unfortunately, very young. Um, and one of the things that he talked with a key cypherpunk figure about was how do we build, like digital monetary systems that will enable us to protect our assets through the period that we're dead into our eventual technological resurrection. And that became one of the kind of threads that eventually fed into Bitcoin.
0: This phase from like the mid 70s to the mid 90s in particular, and and continuing on, like this is a very anarchist, Libertarianish kind of moment, a lot of these guys are, are, are yeah they're they 're giving this kind of radical free markets, free money free banking they 're trying to flesh that world out, trying to draw that imagined world into being like both phases it was clear that these kind of radical thinkers trying to imagine uh, uh, impossible impossible seeming futures through rituals through their cosmograms. That was vitally important in both of these kind of waves of innovation and imagination. Why is this one so kind of libertarian-y right wing, in a sense, and the other is very kind of left-wing progressive?
1: In a lot of ways, it's because there was actually a bigger shift in how technologists thought about what they were working on, right, where the, um, the, the models that defined the world that People, you know, including just as you say, like major inventors, um, like you know, technologists, uh, huge figures in industry, policymakers, economists, intellectuals. The world that defined them before World War II uh, was a model of technology that was based on um, a based on a, a framework of, like, for lack of a better way of putting it, big infrastructure. You know, like huge systems, dams, airstrips, like a whole apparatus of technology that predicated like massive coordination. Um, And it's easy to forget, you know, in the kind of subsequent decades, how much part of the. Uh, sort of premise and and fear slash hope for the early Soviet Union was that here finally was going to be a country that was going to be able to like fully realize what technology and industry were capable of because they had you know no democracy slowing them down you know um, and the one and one of the kind of like like interesting takeaways from that for us is to see just how pervasive that model was it's a very Fordist model right it reflects the idea that the way that you achieve technological gains is through top-down control through like scientifically measuring and managing people and then essentially bullying them whether by you know wage slips or at bayonet point into following uh the the optimal way of doing things so that's why you end up with this i mean I'll put it way more strongly than you. That's, you know, with this kind of like really tyrannical approach, you know, it's chilling reading a lot of the stuff that was being written by very prominent figures at the time who are, you know, totally expected that the, you know, if the future was going to be happy, healthy and prosperous, then uh, you were going to have to just submit all power to some cabal of, you know, scientists with stopwatches. who would dominate everything. And then now, one of the things that I think we're living through at this moment is the kind of long uh, sort of unrolling of the huge technological, scientific, and social shift that happened in the 1960s and 70s towards decentralization, um, towards, you know, the idea that emergent systems, decentralized systems, models that were not centrally coordinated or centrally planned um, were, were the models of the future. And they became the models of industry and they spilled out into the culture in a variety of different ways. So part of what you can actually see is like two different universes that we got to live through in the 20th century. And we're kind of at the tail end of one of them. And for me, a really interesting question to think about for the future is like, is there a new emergent sort of uh, vision, as it were, that is going to kind of unite these things and guide the guide the steps of these, uh, as you say, like these extremists, these outliers, these inventors um, for the next you know half century.
0: A quick note. We are moving Building Tomorrow to a bi-weekly schedule. This way we can really double down on giving you in-depth interviews and layered conversations about tech and innovation and what the future holds. So continue to look for Building Tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts. And to all of our regular listeners, as always, be well.